Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 8 of the podcast, the topic is productizing quality. Our guest is Surbi Krishna Singh, CEO and co-founder of Firevisor. In this conversation, we talk about how she once jumped over the boundary wall and escaped school, her engineering degree, working for Seagate and Micron, and being an outlier, a woman in engineering and manufacturing. We discuss productizing quality improvements in manufacturing and her startup, Firevisor. Augmented is a podcast for industry leaders and operators, hosted by futurist Trun Arne Unheim. Presented by Tulip.co, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG.works, the industrial upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. Industrial conversations that matter. Surbi, how are you today? Hi, Tron. I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great, too. Super, you are a very interesting uh, woman. You are a, call yourself or have been called, for sure, an outlier, graduating with a master in material science, uh, of course, and then, but then working very closely with a bunch of semiconductor companies and manufacturing companies and, uh, you know, basically improving production lines. But now you have started this fantastic startup. Tell me, how did you start getting involved with manufacturing and what do you think people would call you an outlier? Sure, that's that's actually a great question. Um, one that I have uh, answered quite a few times, and but I still love answering it. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> um, I have a background in materials engineering, like you mentioned. Um, semiconductor industry was, uh, was an obvious next step because a lot of the materials engineering knowledge was directly applicable into the industry. So uh, from there on, I moved into process engineering. Um, I actually wanted to, I was actually also considering a PhD, but uh, then I realized that the closest application-based field would be in semiconductor manufacturing. So that's how I got into semiconductor manufacturing. And uh, once I got into manufacturing in general, um, I worked a lot around uh, around quality improvements for uh, the manufacturing products, uh, line improvements, implementing um, you know projects around automating the lines and so forth. And I slowly started to see that while manufacturing was one of the most advanced field in terms of tech, it was still very um, sort of you know. Uh, like the advancements which were spread out on in, in on these individual islands, which were very advanced in themselves, but there was no system sort of connecting it all together, which actually made managing quality um, very difficult, especially with the huge volume of the data that is being produced today. So that's how I, I ended up conceptualizing what we do at Firevisor today. So yeah, I started thinking about quitting uh, my uh, job, uh, which was, by the way, a great day job. Um, yeah, so that's when I, I started to think about it because I just couldn't get this idea out of my head that, you know, I could envision a product that would change the way we work. So, yeah, that's how I ended up starting this company. Um, I guess why I've been called an outlier and, uh, you know, still do is because 
all of the fields that I've been in so far have been, uh, you know, in a way very, very, um, I guess, male dominated in a sense. Um, uh, not that, I mean, um, I mean, not to, you know, sort of put any gender in a bad light or show any gender in a bad light. It's just that uh, throughout, like in engineering or um, in manufacturing or in the startup industry, uh, most of the founders that I've met, they're all male. So I guess that's where the outlier term comes from. You don't see many manufacturing, engineering females or a lot of tech founders that are female. So I guess that's where the outlier term comes from. Why do you think that still is? We are in 2021. Why are there so few females in, uh, well, I guess in engineering, it's changing, diff- different countries, you know, the the balance is changing. But in, in the manufacturing industry, it still is, like you said, fairly imbalanced. Why do you think that is? I think there are a few factors. I mean, there's, um, you know, there's obviously a, a, a pipeline problem in the case that, you know, even when I'm hiring for Firevisor, I see that uh, we don't have those many options to actually hire um, female engineers or um, AI engineers or, or computer scientists in general, right? So there's definitely a pipeline problem. But I I personally believe the reason for this pipeline problem is because um, it's just not posed as a natural choice. It's just not, you know, the normal thing you would do as a girl. And often you're discouraged, like there's systematic, uh, you know, uh, let's say, in a way, you're, you're discouraged by several factors around you. So, for example, when I was in Micron, I was told that, oh, like, I think my nail polish was chipped or something. And then someone told me, oh, you know, this is what's going to happen. If you're going to handle the machines, you should probably take on a role, which is, which doesn't involve handling the machines. So I was like, okay, I mean, I was, I was a bit baffled when that was told to me, but um, I guess that's, that's how people think. A lot of people still think that way. And not only uh, people outside you, but, you know, if, if you are told that and you're shown, uh, you know, you're constantly being shown that in, in media and around you, you kind of internalize it after a point, which is why you're yourself thinking that, oh, you know, probably an engineering career is not for me. In fact, even up until today, we see that um, at the entry level, the numbers are almost equal. But then uh, later on in career, there are more females dropping out from tech roles as uh, compared to males. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess there are several factors at play here, although, you know, I think we're making immense progress, but it's still, uh, you know, not enough. Uh, there needs to be a lot more done. So I guess, yeah, it happens because of systematic, um, you know, discouraging women systematically at several levels. And second thing is... Because that happens, you internalize it after a point. So I guess these are the two biggest factors because of which that is happening even, you know, in 2021 as we speak. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's not, it doesn't feel fantastic to be talking about this all the time. And I don't mean to bring it up and, you know, make it a massive point, but you you are certainly an example of the opposite. And I, and I think it's still unfortunately important to highlight that just so, so that yeah. other, other entrepreneurs who are your gender and, and your age understand that it's at least possible if you want to. And, that it, you know, there doesn't seem to uh, be enough barriers that it's impossible, which is really yeah, good. Yeah. But, uh, you know, people like you can show uh, the way, I guess, and, uh, and indicate that there is really shouldn't be a problem, um, you know, accepting that uh, that this is a very... Um, 
attractive career opportunity for for any anybody. Yeah, um, yeah. But but then, uh, as you are, um, you know, getting uh, your feet wet in this industry, what are some of the interesting challenges you think that have been overlooked? Not just because of gender, but I'm just curious, like because you do come in with a fairly fresh perspective, right? Because mm. that I, I think that happens whenever you are an underrepresented category of, of person because you you mm-hmm. see things differently what were mm-hmm. some of the things you would say that you started seeing early on um you pointed to one thing in you know in efficiencies what were some of the other things you you were observing on the shop floor sure so yeah that's another very interesting topic which i love to bring up in in in, in front of people more uh, the first thing i see is um you know sticking to legacy systems and software i think there's um a whole um like there's there's a whole lot of inertia at play here um a lot of um systems and 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 um processes are in place because you know it's if it's working might as well not uh, touch it right so there's there's that kind of a feelings a feeling uh, in the industry in general and that's also because um, you know, if you change something and then something becomes worse, there's a whole lot, lot at stake. You know, your job is at stake, which is why I feel like change management is very uh, difficult in, in fields like manufacturing. So that's that's one of the things. I mean, it's um, I think it's a it's a, a, a kind of an open secret. Everybody knows about it, but uh, it is that way by design also. To uh, discourage a lot of unnecessary changes, which which might affect uh, the line, uh, but yeah, that does hinder uh, sort of bringing in new systems and innovation in the line. I think uh, there needs to be a balance, uh, as in you know, companies need to be more agile in terms of trying out new systems, new things, um, in order to make improvements. That's really important. So that's definitely one of the things which is overlooked in manufacturing. I'm sure you guys at at Tulip also have experienced this, uh, you know, enough number of times, right? Um, yeah, that's that's one of the things which definitely um, I would like to uh, sort of highlight as as uh, it's it's overlooked a lot of times. Uh, the second thing is um, training. So you know, when you move on from one system to another, um, uh, there's a lot of um, human friction as well. So in the form of training, so let's say, you know, when you say we are moving to industry 4.0 systems, you are not just moving uh, systems, you are actually uh, enabling people around you to also use smarter, faster, better systems, whatever that may be. Uh, that is also not very easy. Like I have had uh, uh, projects that I've worked on where uh, it definitely made the lives of operators easier or the lives of technicians easier. But just because of that, you know, initial bit of, uh, uh, let's say, resistance to change, uh, they initially were not so for it. Only after it was, kind of, you know, enforced kind of top down, they were more open to change. So I guess when they are being trained, they like, I mean, there's this mentality that since they're very process-oriented people, they should be following the process, which is great. And it's really uh, important. But also, you know, when training people inside manufacturing, there should be uh, this... You know, I guess in some way you need to also inculcate this this uh, spirit of innovation. I, I would say, yeah, that's that's the term I would use for it. That hey, like you know, um, 
following your process is great but change is not that bad either i think these are two of the factors which i see is affecting um, productivity and embracing new change even today so yeah these these are two of the things which i see yeah well it seems like already very early in your career when you were i believe at micron you uh, it, we're, we're starting to improve the production lines by doing exactly that you you weren't mm-hmm. happy with the existing automation system and you built you know you built systems from scratch to to improve that productivity and i'm sure mm-hmm. that wasn't something that every uh, production line engineer you know was was conducting at the moment tell me a little bit about that you know how that process sort of spurred your your interest in or, and i guess your discovery that you needed to innovate outside of these large firms sure so yeah, uh, one of the challenge when you uh, operate inside a large firm, uh, even within companies which are very, very advanced technically. So I personally think that I have worked with some of the greatest minds inside Micron, some of the best tech teams that I could possibly, ha- tech teams and resources that I could possibly have access to. Um, but still, you know, when you're working within large organizations, um, uh, you you just have a longer turnaround time for anything like you know if you're implementing something new there are so many uh, processes and, and things like that that you have to go through in order to um, make it happen so that's definitely one of the uh, things that uh, becomes easier in a startup uh, but you know you all and also you know you're kind of restricted in your role when you're working in a large organization so you only have this this and this kpi to meet even if you are on the other end sourcing the best sort of solutions if you're not happy with any of the solutions, you can't go out and build that, right? I mean, unless you 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 actually do what we did, right? Um, so that is another, um, let's say, reason why I had to uh, go out and start Firewiser because um, like every person has their own KPIs to say. Like I had my own KPIs as the process engineer and uh, a lot of times that this, the solutions that were coming, like I said, uh, every um, person or vendor was very, very focused on their own area of improvement, on their own on own KPIs, and they were doing it for many years, right? So a lot of times, this interconnection of islands um, uh, inside manufacturing was something that was neglected a lot because this is just the way people had been doing things for a very long time. Uh, although internally, the like, team started to think about, uh, you know, uh, how to sort of, uh, get data together from different systems, how to make the process easier. But what ended up happening was a lot of times engineers were the people who were thinking about it and they were the ones who were still doing it very, very manually because, again, they couldn't go out and create a system to do it, right? So, yeah, um, I guess uh, that's that's basically what happened there. Um, the reason why uh, one has to go out and, and build a system around it is because... Um, Everyone was focused on their own KPIs and building those kind of uh, their own kind of system for very long. Uh, so there needed to be sort of an interface uh, system between these different uh, silos inside manufacturing. So then you went outside and tell me about the process. How you got to I guess entrepreneur first this uh, accelerator type program, and and then again you know being a startup founder is is you know still. Uh, male, male dominated, and you 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 again discovered a whole other set of discrimination because I I believe you you quoted that there's some two percent of VC funding goes to 
female founded companies, but but you had a great experience there, it, it seems. T- tell me a little bit about what, what happened then and how you formulated what then became FireVisor. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, um, on joining Entrepreneur First was, I guess, one of the, uh, I, I guess, in terms of learning, uh, it was one of the most steep learning curves that I've had in my life. It was really amazing because, you know, you had all of these uh, amazingly talented people from industries which you've probably only heard of before or seen from a distance all put in a single room and everybody is super smart so yeah it was it was an incredible learning curve um a great experience and also i met my co-founder there um again someone who was from a very different background and uh, you know who was very very fascinated by the kind of impact that we could bring into manufacturing so yeah um the moment I decided to quit my job uh, and offer from Entrepreneur First to join their third cohort in Singapore came along, I decided that, okay, you know, let's let's go for it. I have nothing to lose. And I guess that's one of the best choices I've made so far. Um, so joined the cohort, met my co-founder there. We started the company. And uh, luckily for me, I wouldn't say I've had to face a lot of discrimination as such. Of course, um, systematically, there's still... Um, okay, again, going back to the numbers a little bit, uh, there were nine or ten females, female uh, founders out of a cohort of 100 plus, right? So again, we the number comes back to somewhere around 10%. And then VC funding overall um, in one of the best years so far has been around 2 point something percent to female founders, right? Of, of, out of the entire VC funding that was allocated that year. So uh, the numbers are still uh, pretty bad, but you would be surprised to learn that pretty much all of those 10 founders within the cohort actually went on to build um, successful companies. Like uh, the success rate of female founders uh, was much higher than, than male founders. Again, I don't mean to sort of, you know, have this sort of segregation, but that is what ended up happening. And if you look at the data in terms of how female-founded companies perform, the return on investment for every VC is much, much higher than that on um, male founder, like companies founded by, by male founders, right? So, I mean, just the numbers tell you that the money should be going to more and more female founders. I mean, Bumble just IPO'd and, you know, you have other um, female founders coming up every day. So um, I guess uh, personally for me, there was not a huge uh, discrimination that I have to face. In fact, I would even go ahead and say that, uh, you know, uh, in 2021, uh, being a minority actually helps you get highlighted. I I mean, yeah, I I personally think that that's a great thing for women. Like you're getting a lot of representation today. Yes, there was this, you know, few meetings where you get asked about, oh, like, what are your plans with with your uh, life and babies and marriage and things like that, which a male founder would never be asked, right? So, and that has happened. Like, you know, my, my, me and my co-founder have been in the same meetings, asking the same questions, except this was always asked to me and not to him, right? So, so that happens, but that's okay. Like, I mean, it happened a few times. You just, yeah, uh, glowed about it a little bit and move on. Uh, but other than that, like other than those one-off meetings, I would personally say that I haven't had huge discrimination to face. Uh, but yeah, I mean, 
like you said i think you you talked about it a little bit earlier that uh, this is not a very like i mean people should come out more and do it for and i'm saying that for anybody male founders or female founders like there's a lot of um, uh, fear around starting a company and it's perceived as being a really difficult thing to do i mean for sure it's a really difficult thing but it's not more difficult than i guess you know losing your parent or or i mean other comparable tragedies or or more difficult things that you might face in life so this is the level of difficulty which you would have to go through something else as well so you know you might as well do this um and you'll basically be creating impact which is not comparable to anything else so it's not that difficult i mean i feel that uh, if you really just come out and do it the proper way find a product market fit and and uh, sort of spend enough time in in looking out for that before investing a lot of yourself in the company you'll be fine so it's not that difficult so more and more women and people in general should come out and start their companies i mean it's not uh, i mean is that, that if that is something that you're thinking about just go ahead and do it hmm. let's yeah. talk about the the content for a bit so if i understand correctly firevisor is adding basically a productized layer to the quality movement and and again yeah. i guess the quality movement is a male dominated consulting industry which has been mm-hmm. existing for many many years uh w- where people go into plants essentially mm-hmm. and make recommendations for improvements you you have a different take on on how these improvements can can be made give us a sense of exactly what it is that you're improving and and how it actually is a product as opposed to just sort of delivering sort of service improvements sure so currently how a lot of quality improvements um uh, in manufacturing work are like you mentioned they they um are recommended by uh, quality consultants uh, outside of the organization of course in uh, companies have internal quality management systems and so on and so forth but uh, given the large volume of data that is being produced and the heavy volumes of products that that we are dealing with today um a lot of those quality management systems are becoming uh, redundant very fast right uh, they were good when you were you know uh, making radios back in the 70s and so forth but you know when you are creating a new smartphone every year every 6 months uh those systems can't really uh cater to your needs anymore right so um uh, same for consulting so co- quality consulting and its principles are great they are still um the bible for your quality management systems uh, but what ends up happening a lot of the times is um a, a consultant might come in uh, they might advise you about one area one specific quality problem and you know you probably basically implement it it works they are gone uh, you're done with but then what happens when the problem comes back again right there's probably learnings from the last time but uh, the team probably moved out um, a lot of the people that were involved in the initial case are no longer around um, what do you do the next time you basically the the engineer who is on the job at that uh, point in time has to redo everything again from scratch right so that's what ends up happening with any sort of quality consulting uh, be it uh, you know traditional consulting or uh, you know a lot of ai based and predictive analytics consulting that is coming up in in manufacturing quality these days um, they might be effective but for a short period of time and for one off occurrences 
there's no system which can actually uh, you know take account of all of the data running in the line for a long period of time and for the entire line right so it's it's it becomes it, it ends up being a very one off thing whereas what firewiser does is we have productized ai based quality management for manufacturing right so um, we are basically recording all of your um, or, get, or let's say we are basically learning from all of uh, the quality occurrences in the line uh, in order to uh, preempt engineers when it happens in the future right so that way we are we are basically creating a product or system around it as opposed to uh, you know just solving problems one off as and when they happen right and uh, that way we also become a part of the lines so we have four products all focusing on different stages of manufacturing so we have ai based defect detection which is the first layer um, of of quality management so you know that's when you basically detect whether or not there's a quality problem then we have uh, defect analytics which takes in data from defect detection combines it with other data streams and tells the engineers or or automatically gives them clues of whether the problem came from right the next layer is to have an ai based statistical process control for the line and the final layer is to combine all of this together with engineers analysis to tell them if they're going to have a problem before it happens that's the predictive analytics so that's how we uh, have formed up like that's how we have productized quality management as opposed to one off consulting and and where are you currently i understand your first clients are in solar manufacturing uh and yeah. uh, and then you're moving on to some other fields so yeah, we have a huge base in solar manufacturing industry um quite a bit in semicon and electronics uh we actually um have an interesting use case in in um medicine as well so pharma but and that was more because of uh, covid so you know we had to implement a very fast uh, system for um inspecting uh, covid um testing kits uh, so yeah, we've uh, but yeah i guess um, around 70 to 80% of our base is in solar manufacturing and remaining in 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 semicon and electronics so these are the fields we focus on a lot more um which is solar semicon electronics um also looking at automotive soon and pharma hmm. tell me a little bit about the future of of quality and manufacturing how how far can we take this predictive analytics and how perfect can our products get inside of a you know an isolated process but also taking into account that uh, a lot of these products that you speak about they are very complex so you're coordinating not just in t- inside of one single factory but there there's a lot of x factors outside there's supply chains you know it's not as easy as it was in the olden days that you know everything mm-hmm. is sort of there you just have to kind of put it in the right sequence there, there there are many many other challenges these days so i'm just curious how far you know in the next few years will we make massive progress through your software and and other approaches in predictive analytics and what are the main barriers remaining right now are they technological or are they more of a human nature okay so i mean if i was to talk to you about my vision for manufacturing as in where we want to see manufacturing be at is we want to create self aware factories which means um, all of these different uh, 
data streams that you talk about which is like you know data coming in from supply chain um uh, basically tracking data all of this uh, combined together uh, we do see that happening in factories of the future so it's basically a lights out factory and everything ranging from uh, order fulfill ranging from loading uh, material on the line to order fulfillment is entirely controlled by by software um, and this is includes everything um controlling the machines uh, machine predictive maintenance uh, quality analysis quality management uh, the, everything is basically controlled by by software and systems um with uh, of course there there is um, uh, control involved from an, from a human aspect but uh, let's say a lot of that becomes digital as well right so that's our vision for a factory in fact we even think that uh a lot of the data inside factories are will become commoditized so you know instead of having these individual companies which are providing ai uh, products or solutions um all of these sort of um uh, you know central ai models for world, one vertical let's say for solar all of these models generally become commoditized and there are third, there are these engines which are basically providing this to everybody you know somewhat like what um google does for google analytics now that kind of thing we do see that happening for manufacturing in the future um i guess we are at the early stages of that happening but yeah that's that's the future we envision uh, for manufacturing um one big challenge to that now is quality of data so data quality is um needs to be um i would say more standardized and also um, i'm sure you know about how microsoft basically took all different kinds of of hardwares and um, put them all on uh, a single interface uh, that's something that needs to happen for manufacturing verticals as well uh, there needs to be some sort of a, you know uniform layer of interaction between these completely different machines I, I believe Tulip is one of the the companies doing that. You know, you have your your, your Tulip systems, which are interacting with all different kinds of uh, machines and sensors um, and systems. So um, you will see, like, we'll all see more and more of that happening. The companies like Firewiser coming about and uh, basically adding these layers of software to, irrespective of what hardware is installed on the factory floor, and slowly that will improve uh, the quality of data that is being collected as well. So yeah. uh um, that is my vision for manufacturing but yeah one thing which is stopping us from getting there right now is the quality of data that is being produced uh so yeah once uh management has that as part of their vision to improve the quality of data a lot of things will just sort of you know uh start to move from there yeah there's there's highly variable data quality right now any um any advice to other founders and and we don't have to go back to female founders that's obviously specifically interesting but you know if you just think think back uh, on on the experience you have had now in the industry making improvements starting a company <clears throat> what would you say to young founders who are going into manufacturing right now where where should they uh how should they approach it should they work in manufacturing a little bit like you did to really gain the experience it it would seem to me that it is an industry where you can't just be a smart person in a garage right many people have told me this who have innovated yeah. in this space so it is a challenge for young people because you actually do 
uh, well, maybe you disagree, but but you know, if that is the case, you would you would at least have to get that experience somehow. So, what is the balance between experience, which obviously can't take thirty years, right? Because you mm-hmm. need to innovate at some point. Um, yeah. So, what's your advice to an, to an innovator? How should they, I guess, quickly get enough experience that they can innovate in this industry? So, I guess for manufacturing itself, uh, I, I completely agree um, not to discourage anybody from going into manufacturing and start going into man, uh, uh, going into starting a manufacturing company. Uh, but uh, experience is really, really important in uh, this industry. Uh, a lot of times, uh, prospective customers do not even speak to you if you don't speak their language. Um, and that's for a reason because, of course, you know, if you're from the industry, you understand a lot of the challenges. But again, for an outsider, I guess a lot of times uh, what I've heard is manufacturing does not seem like a very in- in- interesting industry to get into. <laughs> so I guess this this problem kind of balances itself out. A lot of the problems are only understood by people who are within the industry. Um, but yeah, let's say, you know, if you're thinking of starting an in- uh, uh, company in the manufacturing industry, I would highly recommend you get at least um, two to three years of experience under your belt. And if you feel like you lack um, other aspects of it, there are a lot of great people out there who would love to sort of help you on your journey. So, uh, you know, have that uh, look for mentors and advisors as much as possible. And one of the, the, one of the, Things I would always tell any founder who comes up to me, whether it's for a manufacturing company or in any other field, is spend a lot of time, um, as much as possible, um, sort of looking for the correct uh, uh, product and whether it's a commercially viable product and whether anyone's going to pay for it. Of course, there can be different kinds of revenue models, but spend enough time doing that. Speak to uh, hundreds of people, if possible, that is the single most important point, uh, you know, in starting any company and more so in manufacturing, because in manufacturing, there can be so many nice to haves, but uh, you can only make a true impact when you're making a product, which is not just a nice to have, it has to be something which solves a real pain point. So spend enough time talking to hundreds of people, if possible, before you go on to, uh, you know, even incorporate. Um, the moment you have an idea, just start basically asking people uh, um, what they think about it or whether they'll use it or whether they think anybody will pay for it. So I guess that's really important for founders in general and even more so for manufacturing. And um, yeah, I guess according to me, at least somewhere between one to three years of experience on a factory floor is really important in manufacturing. These days, a lot of people go on the web to take kind of courses or track newsletters, you know, subscribe to those. Are there any sources that you have found particularly useful in manufacturing that uh, keeps you, uh, you know, up to date on what's happening? Uh, so, okay, I will typically, um, I mean, I'll typically reference two kinds of sources. So they are, number one, they'll be vertical specific sources. So you will know which are, um, I guess, the most interesting publications inside a vertical. So within manufacturing, you can't typically do everything. Uh, you are probably going to focus on specific verticals. 
So also focus on the publications in those verticals. So for solar, uh, you know, uh, you have um, a few which we um, refer to. So yeah, just just look for these uh, top publications inside your verticals, right? And then other than that, keep an eye out for um, general market trends through reports. You know, there are a lot of great companies out there. Uh, you know, you have your Del- Deloitte's and McKinsey's and, and so forth who are producing uh, reports every now and then. Um, keep an eye out for that. Keep reading. I also really like to um, uh, sort of, you know, attend webinars, especially those coming from uh uh, companies which I personally know are innovating in manufacturing. So, you know, if, if I, I'll just basically register for the newsletters and events and so forth. And the moment I find something interesting, I'll, I'll go ahead and attend that webinar. Their webinars for, for trends to understand uh, what they're doing. And I, I also keep an eye out for interesting startups. So, you know, if, if um, there's anything which uh, is being done um, differently, I, I, I just... Yeah, keep an eye out for that, which is yeah also pretty easy to do these days. You know, you have access to um, all kinds of information. Uh, so yeah, that's that's basically kind of what I do to keep myself up to date on the trends. Yeah, and um, now I'll be listening well, to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, hopefully we have some good interviews here. Well, Surbi, it's been fantastic yeah. to to gain so much insight from uh, you know such a young and fascinating entrepreneurs yourself i i wish you the best of luck and um let's see maybe the quality of manufacturing can can improve drastically in the next few years i i thank you uh, very much thank you so much Sean. it has been great interacting with you guys and we hope to work with tulip someday as well that would be great yeah you have just listened to episode eight of the augmented podcast with host ronan unheim the topic was productizing quality, and our guest was Surbi Krishna Singh, CEO and co-founder of Firevisor. In this conversation, we talked about productizing quality improvements in manufacturing and her startup. My takeaway is that at the Augmented Podcast, in tracing and anticipating the contours of the emerging future of Industry 4.0, we try to have a special focus on diversity. For example, on women in manufacturing, or on young trailblazers, or individuals that represent both, as in this case. We need all perspectives on board if industry is going to transform in a positive way. Industry is, in many ways, the last bastion of resistance against several areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I truly hope this is the last decade we need to describe industry this way. An issue so core to humankind, such as manufacturing, should be co-developed by all. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like other episodes featuring female trailblazers. And it's quite a list, such as episode 24, Emerging Interfaces for Human Augmentation, episode 32, Covering Industrial innovation episode 18 transforming foundational industries episode 16 a female fighter in a manufacturing sme episode 7 work of the future episode 3 reimagine training or episode 2 how to train augmented workers augmented industrial conversations that matter